we finished our, our last series, which was on the Apostles' Creed, and uh, we're beginning a new series in the lead-up to Pentecost uh, called Empowered. And the focus of the series is, is to help us to deepen our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. And again, as I mentioned in the, in the email, that the Holy Spirit has been largely neglected in, in terms of Christian teaching, especially in the Western church and Christian teaching and practice has kind of played a minor role and uh, often been considered, when, he, when the Holy Spirit is considered, it's sort of in quite reductive ways, kind of shrunk, shrunken down. So um, for much of Western Christian church history, the Holy Spirit's basic and primary role has been reduced down to just transmitting information about who Jesus is, kind of teaching us about the saving knowledge of Christ. So in this way, the Holy Spirit kind of has been reduced down to something a bit like a divine data dispenser, like a Dropbox file or a Google file that just helps us to get the information we need about about Jesus. Um, So, yeah, rather than a person that we talk about, we talk about God as being triune and having three one, one God with three persons. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is a person. And, and like all people, people have complex wills, they have emotion, they have um, personality. So we, we, when we think about the Holy Spirit like a um, Dropbox, uh, we don't really get to meet the personality of the Holy Spirit. So given this reductive view, and in particular in the Western church, uh, it's not surprising that the Holy Spirit's kind of been relegated to a minor role in all things, just a, a bit of a, an oddity in the Christian story, sometimes um, mentioned, sometimes not. And it doesn't help that the first translations of the, so the Bible is written in Greek and Hebrew, the first translations of the word spirit uh, in English was ghost. So that sort of hasn't really helped us and that it's given us even more of the sense of the Holy Spirit of this kind of eth- ethereal um, not uh, fuzzy, um, floating around, half real, half not real vibe of God, um, rather than God Himself. But if we consider the the meaning of the more the literal meaning of those Hebrew words um, and Greek words for for the Spirit, well, we we will see that um, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we should probably get back to the original meanings, which are breath and wind. So the, the Hebrew word for spirit is, is breath and wind. That's sort of the more literal translation of spirit. And in same in Greek, uh, pneuma means breath, like pneuma, uh, pneumatic, um, to be filled with air. So, and as we, yeah, as we think about that, um, breath or the wind of God, I, I just was thinking about February and the, and the cyclone and just the um, power of the, the storm that rolled through. Um, I was thinking about it because it was about 10 o'clock at night and I was at the back of our house holding um, our garden fence, which was just getting knocked down. All the trees were pushing it down and I was just holding the fence like, I can't stand here all night, um, feeling that absolute force of the wind hitting against that fence. And eventually the fence did fall down um, and we wait and we wait for our insurer. But um, but yeah, the, the power of, of wind, um, we just need to look outside today actually, that the power of wind it changes things. It, it, it affects things. It forces things to, to move. Um, it's a powerful thing. It's not a floaty, soft, ethereal thing. Um, or if we think about breath, even just our own breath, the breath that's in our, our lungs right now as we, as we breathe in and 
we're, we're animated by, by the breath, by the, by the air that fills our lungs. And I think, again, that, that's a helpful metaphor of who the Holy Spirit is, is the animating life giver, um, the one who, without, we would, we would soon expire. So to speak of God as spirit, to speak of God as the, a divine wind or as the breath of God, I think is helpful and it helps us to not fall into diminishing his, his realness. So, um, so that's what we're going to be talking about in, in our series. Oh, yeah, I was also thinking about the, ma- uh, the manuka trees out on the west coast, if you've ever been out to, to the coast where the manuka trees kind of grow horizontally. That's power, you know, that to make a tree go like that, to stay permanently pinned that, in that direction. Um, so our, our contention in this series, we're going to be in this series for the next five, six weeks, um, is that we, we, should experience, or we should expect to experience God in ways that are real, like as in ways that are, that are experiential, that are personal, that are interactive, that, that bring, engage our full senses, not just experiencing the Holy Spirit in a cognitive way or a ritualistic way, but actually to tangibly experience the Holy Spirit. Um, so we should expect that. And we should also, we also want to make the case that the Holy Spirit is central to every aspect of life, not just the religious categories that we might want to put the Holy Spirit into, but the Holy Spirit's um, central to every aspect, absolutely every aspect of life. There's no compartments in our being, in our mind, in our story that doesn't, that, that's not, that he's not invited into. And then finally, we, we want to show how an openness to the Holy Spirit is the key to our formation as, as human beings, to our full f- formation, to our full flourishing as humans, is um, dependent on our openness to the Holy Spirit. Or put another way, uh, without the Holy Spirit animating and shaping our lives, um, then we, th- we would say that, that our lives tend to deform. They tend to deform away from what it means to be truly human. So these are three really big claims, um, you know, that we can experience God, not just in our mind, but actually we can sense him, like, like we sense the wind blowing on our skin, that, that uh, the Holy Spirit is central to every part of our life, and that without the Holy Spirit, we will sort of um, stutter in our formation as humans. But I'm confident, even though they're three big claims, that they're all true and reliable. So it's going to be Lots of fun uh, over the next six weeks as we tease this out, as we explore this together, as we experiment in this thing. So, um, and just, yeah, make, make space to encounter God. So I, uh, I also just wanted to add that, that we're not just doing this series merely because we're in the lead up to Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday is end of May. You know, it's kind of convenient that we're doing it in, the, in step with, with, with the rest of the church. But I think it's also a um, timely thing for us to be looking at. Because uh, there's always this tendency in Christianity for it to slide or for it to devolve down into something called a kind of like functional deism um, or a view of the world that sees God as existing, theoretically, somewhere, but not really interacting with us, not really interacting with, with, with the world. Um, so it's a distant, unconcerned, uninvolved God. In, in this in this view, and essentially because of that, we we live our lives 
as if God doesn't really exist. We might profess belief in, Christi- in, in, in God, but not really expect any, any follow-through on that belief, any, any interaction with this God. And it turns out that this, this form of Christianity is actually really widespread. It's actually really wildly popular um, throughout, throughout the world. Um, it's one of the most popular expressions of, of religion in the world. And this is not just my opinion, um, but it's actually the findings of uh, some large-scale, oh, there's our classic deist god, sort of detached and, and removed up there. Um, but it's this large-scale longitudinal study of American teenagers called the National Study of Youth and Religion uh, investigated and has been investigating how religious lives are changing, how adolescents' religious lives are changing as they emerge into young adulthood. So it started in 2001, and it's still going. Um, And the principal researchers are both sociologists. They're professors of sociology in two different American universities. And they've published their findings um, on this large-scale study in a book called Soul Searching, or Soul Searching, as that picture says, but Soul Searching. the, the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. And in, in this book, that those are the two principal um, researchers, and, and in this book, they make this quite bold claim. They say that the de facto dominant religion among contemporary U.S. teenagers is what we might call moralistic, therapeutic deism. So the authors suggest that this this moralistic therapeutic deism, this religious worldview, is is moralistic at its core because it's about um, uh, it, it teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. So, this is what uh, this is one of the core beliefs. Um, and th- I should just say this is not like a, a formal religion. It's 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 sort of a it's a it's a religion that exists in the in in the absence of any organisation, and yet it's really popular, as I'll show you. So it believes that, um, yeah, that central to living a good and happy life is to be a good moral person. And for what being a good moral person involves, the authors, so in summing up all this research, all these interviews with, with thousands of American teenagers, suggest that um, a good moral life is about being nice, uh, kind, pleasant, um, respectful, responsible, at work on self-improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best to be successful. So that's the, that's the idea of what the, the moral life is. Um, and then, as, as the name suggests, that's the moralistic aspect. There's also a therapeutic dimension. So in addition to living a, a morally upright life or doing, you know, being good, um, it's also a life that feels good. So it's got a therapeutic aspect. Or to quote the authors again, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is essentially about feeling good, happy, secure, at peace. It's about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along amiably with other people. So that's why it's called therapeutic, because it's about ultimately it's about uh, feeling good. And in addition to being moralistic and therapeutic, uh, the authors also claim that, that its view of the nature of God has all the hallmarks of, of deism, and that this view that God created the world um, and defines uh, the general order of things, but not is not particularly involved in things, not particularly involved in one's affairs, and particularly not uh, in things that we don't want God to be involved in. He's kind of a, we can sort of 
put him over there. Um, most of the time, this, this God is uh, kept at a safe distance, as they say. So if you put it all together, you have this form of religious belief that the authors suggest is the de facto creed, or the kind of the not stated but the actual the actual belief among young Christians as well as not just in uh, not just Christians but across all various um, religions in America, Judaism and Islam even. So this this is the kind of real religion that lives inside the professed religions. And before we can go off and uh, blame it all on the youth, <laughs> as we like to do. The, the authors really suggest that this this form, this moralistic, therapeutic deism, uh, seems to be um, widespread among U.S. adults as well. And I guess it doesn't seem like rocket science, does it? Like when we really think about it, it it's quite obvious. Um, so, so the they the authors suggest that you know that it's widespread popular faith among. U.S. adults, and um, they go on to say that most American youth um, faithfully mirror the aspirations, lifestyles, practices, and pro uh, problems of the adult world into which they're being socialized. In these ways, adolescence may actually serve as a very accurate barometer of the condition of the culture and institutions of our larger society. So this suggests that this, this alternative form of Christianity, if we can even call it that, is, uh, is living in the background of, of what we're doing when we're talking about discipleship. It's living in the background of what we're doing when we're talking about um, following Jesus and, and growing up into maturity in faith. And I, even though it's all in America, I think we probably can sense that it's probably here too, isn't it? It's sort of one of those things which is, it feels quite, it feels quite familiar. So... This brings us back to the rationale for our new teaching series. Again, like I said, um, I don't know if there's a photo of that house there yet, but anyway, I'll explain that in a second. Our, our new teaching series, never mind, um, and its focus on coming into contact with God in real ways, right? So if we, have, we think about the sort of moralistic, therapeutic, deistic religion, and then we think about what we're doing. We're thinking about how do we actually come into contact with the real God, the, the, the living God, who can, who can break through some of those assumptions. So, this, yeah. Because if God is present, if God is personal, if, if, uh, if, this, is, if this is true, and if, if what we say is true, that God hears us, that God is present to us, that God, um, that God is a person with a personality, then this moves us, it moves us from this deistic view um, to one where God is free, where God has his own agency, where God's able to act in ways that we are surprised by, where God is able to speak in ways that we're surprised by. We have a living God. And this is certainly my story when I think about it. I was raised in a devoutly Christian home, um, as many of you know, my parents were ministers, uh, initially in the Baptist church. Sorry, Dad. Um, <laughs> but, but later in the mercy, he's still leading worship, even after all these years. Something to sing about. Um, this is the context where I grew up, and, 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 and then later in the vineyard, which we're in now. Um, so this is the, yeah, this is where, for me as a young person growing up, church had a huge place in my life. It was... It was a huge part of our family life. Um, oh, there's our church there. We were up on Snell's Beach. And there all the time. 
And I do also remember my sister cornering me, my sister with the red hat on there, cornering me one day when I was about four um, and suggesting that I ought to become a Christian. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I didn't know. I thought I was a Christian. But um, she, she, she got this book out, still got it. Um, she got this book out and read it to me about a caterpillar that dreamed of flying. And, um, and she sort of asked me, you know, do, do you want to fly? Do you want to soar with God? I was like, yeah, I do. So I wrote my name down in the book and, and, and became a Christian, I guess. And um, so, so for me, that, that whole, it, you know, it's funny, I, I kind of joke about it. But in a way, I actually really clearly remember it. So even as a four-year-old, there was like a, mm, there's a, there's something happened there. Um, and I still have this book, obviously. It's obviously quite meaningful to me. But in the same sense, life went on, you know, as a four-year-old, you just get on with doing what four-year-olds do, <laughs> like, you know, exploring drains and um, uh, just chasing the cat and, um, I don't know, building huts in the empty, vacant lot across the street. So, so yeah, I made some kind of formal decision to become a Christian, but effectively, you know, life goes on. Um, and so I, I never really felt as I was growing up that God was particularly present or particularly real uh, or near to me. It wasn't that I didn't believe in God. It's just that I didn't really expect God to be part of my life, you know. Um, I, in saying that, I sort of thought God was more of a thing for the adults. I, I watched the way that my parents sort of were so interested in God and so involved in the work of church. So for me, God was something someone who maybe existed out there for adults and for their concerns and for their questions, but uh, not really for me. But it wasn't until I was about mm, 16 years old, handsome pink man there, um, that that I this view began to shift for me. And the change happened sort of quite suddenly. So, so um, for some reason, maybe some kind of clever plan of, of Lloyd, he, he asked if I wanted to go down to Christchurch for a weekend where um, there was a retreat and I could go down without any adult supervision, just fly down to Christchurch with friends and hang out with some other church people down there. I was like, yeah, heck yeah, I want to do that. Um, so so that's what I did. We flew down to Christchurch and, um, and was picked up at the airport by some very enthusiastic Cantabrians and... Um, and they took us away up into up into Banks Peninsula, up to Governor's Bay, where there's this lovely retreat. Um, I think it's called Living Waters. Anyway, um, it was a good time, and and things were pr progressing, you know, fairly well. It was like some cool people and an uh, interesting place, and and then uh, you know maybe 30 young people or so, and they all seemed kind of like normal people at first, um, and then suddenly things just took a turn for the for the strange side of things when the retreat leader said, right, now now I'm going to teach you how to hear from God. I was like, oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm used to like the idea of talking to God, but I, I'm not so sure about hearing from God. That, that doesn't sound very safe. Um, and this, the retreat leader is Dave, who's going to be here with us next week, actually, Dave McGregor. So, so um so next week, Dave's speaking here, and he'll probably speak a little bit about this too. But anyway, Dave was there, and and um, so yeah, like I said, I was okay thinking about talking to God, but um, but that seemed sensible. But hearing God sounded a bit strange, a bit dodgy. Um, 
so anyway, I joined this circle of, of people and um, thought, well, at least I'll sort of pretend to hear God, um, see what happens. And as we sat there in the quiet and afternoon and, and Dave was like, you know, just, just close your eyes and just, just open, your, open yourself to God and, and he, might, he might give you a picture, he might give you a, a Bible verse, he might just nudge some feeling or something like that. So I sat there and craned my spiritual ears to heaven and God speak to me. <laughs> didn't hear anything, nothing. So Dave, Dave assured me that that's fine, that's normal, that's all okay. Uh, it's all part of the learning, all part of the trying. And then later in the day, um, Dave suggested that these, these young Cantabrians should pray for us, for us Aucklanders, obviously, because we're sort of God-forsaken or something like that. But anyway, it was clear we needed some help. So, so again, we did the same thing. We paused, we waited, um, and, and then... Um, Dave asked, you know, has anyone heard anything? And then one by one around the, around the circle, each of these people just started offering um, just invitations, phrases, um, observations. And they were the most precise, the most, um, the most uncanny words uh, that just were like, um, yeah, just remarkable um, and intensely intriguing that these people could have known these things about me. <laughs> and it was this, for me, it was a big turning point in my life. It was this sudden realization that even if he's not talking to me, he's talking to these people and that he's telling them things about my life. Um, so without sort of realizing that it was such a significant moment, I guess it was suddenly the sense that God was actually near, that God was actually drawing near and becoming present in, in this little room. And that was strange. That was, um, that was exciting as well. And now, you know, I think two decades on from that experience, so getting pretty old now. Um, but, and at the same time, still trying to continue to integrate this knowledge, you know, tr trying to integrate this understanding that, that God is active and alive and, speak, and speaks to us. Um, but it, yeah, it was hard to return to that comfortable view which I had had of God as this absent God, of God as this philosophy of uh, a, a deistic kind of view of God when I knew that he was available, essentially, when he was present like that. So yeah, uh, it was quietly life-changing, and, and I'm very grateful for it. And I'm reminded of it, that you know, as I as I thought about that and told that story, of oh, that's the retreat, pretty cool spot. Um, yeah, that reminded even in telling that that story that for me the way the way in at that point I guess the way into being um, to hearing God to experiencing God has also been the way on. It's been the way I've continued to have to learn to rely on God. Um, and I think that this sort of the way in is the way on is a really important idea. It's a pattern which even is in the Bible, I think, you know, the, the Apostle Paul identified in a, in a very different context um, this group of Christians who were living in this Roman province of Galatia who had forgotten this idea, they'd forgotten this idea that the way in is the way on. And uh, they must have had a similar experience to me. I can only wonder. Some kind of life-changing encounter with God, the way you read Galatians, the way he talks to them. Something happened in Galatia with these people. They had something of an experience, something that they couldn't 
put into any category that they could understand. And then they thought that sort of after having done that, then they had to add a whole lot of religious doing on top of it. Um, a whole lot of, so experiencing grace and adding in a whole lot of religious behavior. But so Paul writes this letter to them and he doesn't really, he really doesn't hold back in confronting this mentality. He just piles up question after question after question. He says to them, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you really experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of law or by you, your believing what you heard? And we don't really have time, I don't really have time to do justice to unpacking, unpacking this verse in its bigger context, but the point, I think, for Paul is that the normative Christian experience was some kind of reception of the Holy Spirit, some kind of, um, some kind of physical, tangible experience of God. You know, he's saying, did you receive the Spirit? You know, he's, he's assuming, you know, you know you received the Spirit. He's, he's asking them. Um, have you experienced so much in vain? Does, did God give a Spirit and work miracles among you? You know, so, so for Paul, it's this, at the foundation of their experience was a, was a, uh, experience of the miraculous, um, not just a cognitive understanding of the Holy Spirit, not just a ritualistic understanding of the Holy Spirit, but one that was tangible. And again, in um, Acts 19, while Paul was traveling through the, the ancient city of Ephesus, he met some people, presumably some Jews, I guess, who, who knew, maybe knew a little bit about Jesus. They knew about John the Baptist, but as Paul was with them and chatting with them, he kind of seemed something's not quite right here, something's missing here, um, something seemed a bit different. Um, and no doubt there was lots of conversation with them, but Paul, again, just slips back into his habit of asking direct questions and, and just asks them straight, you know, did you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, I've never even heard there's a Holy Spirit. So, so Paul um, then asked them, you know, what baptism? And they talk about the baptism of John, and and then he prays for them, and they and they receive the Holy Spirit. So it's a bit of a pattern, I guess, as well for for Paul that encountering the Holy Spirit was a, a normative component of of their faith and of our faith. So here's the question: as I kind of come to a conclusion, a conclusion in the sense that this is the beginning of a series we're going to be working through. This is just, um, hopefully, just provoking some thought around the role of the Holy Spirit and the centrality of the Holy Spirit to our faith. Um, because, yeah, why should it be any different for us? If this is the, if this is the pattern, that the Holy Spirit is, is someone who is alive and encountering us today, the way in is the way on, the way in of realizing that God is near, the way in of realizing that that God is not absent, but that he's present, the way that realizing that God is directing and shaping and leading is the way on. And that's why I'm, I'm really, really thrilled to, that, we're, that we're diving into this series.